you have your Bibles, turn to uh, the Old Testament book of Esther, chapter 3. First, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. I like fishing, but I'm not a great fisherman. Some of you are really great fisher people. You can't wait to get the license for a new season. But uh, I have a rod, and I have a tackle box, and in the tackle box I have some floats, and I have some weights, and everything, you know, lures, that everything that goes with fishing. But I opened up my tackle box this week, and I realized my last fishing license was 2010. <laughs> so I'm actually not that, I mean, I like fishing, but it's not like in me, like it is in some of you. But I've noticed something about fishing, actually particularly fish, and that is, I don't think fish are that smart. Stop and think about it. You're standing along the side of a stream, or you're in a boat, and you're in a lake, you know, and you, you drop your line, and it has a little worm on it with the hook, and you drop it down, and all of a sudden this fish that's hungry just goes, ah! and then there's a struggle that ensues, the fish is going all over the place, and poof, he's gone. About ten minutes later, another worm comes down, Another struggle ensues, and poof, fish number two is gone. About ten minutes later, another worm comes down, poof, another fish is gone. You'd think at the monthly fish meeting that somebody would realize that Bob and Joe and Sam are no longer with us. But no, the fish just don't even realize that they're getting less and less fish. What's up with that? I think fishing is a good metaphor for some things that take place in the Christian life, like temptation and sin. I think sometimes we forget what the Bible clearly communicates, that we have an enemy called the devil that is fishing for us. I've quoted many times through the years, publicly, John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. But I always quote the last part of John 10, 10, which I just did. You know what the first part is? The thief comes to kill and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. In fact, a little bit later over in 1 Peter... We're told these words. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In other words, what I want to say to you is, is that part of the Christ life is recognizing that we have a spiritual enemy that's always dropping hooks in front of us that are alluring, that are appealing. And many of you know what it's like to be caught. And all of the craziness that ensues. And you know what it's like to be on the line and not be free. But Jesus has come to set you free and me free. Amen? That's the truth. And so that's the gospel message. But our enemy, he's got some lures. And that's what this series is about. During the season of Lent, I want to talk about the seven deadly sins. 
or seven lures that Satan uses. Now, historically, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the church, Big C Church, the church has said that you can pick any sin of the hundreds and thousands of sins, and you can always bring them down to the root cause of at least seven sins. Seven sins pretty much covers all of the hundreds and thousands of sins. And so this morning I want to talk to you about the first of the seven deadly sins, and that is the sin of pride. Now the reason why I'm picking out pride first is because there's also a lot of conversation theologically about the fact that if you take all those the seven deadly sins, actually you can put them under the umbrella of pride. Because pride is like the granddaddy of all sins. Okay? So, in order for us to understand what pride is, and more importantly, break free from pride before it breaks you, because this series isn't really about sin or the seven deadly sins. It's actually about how to break free and live free in Christ. So, turn to your Bibles, Esther chapter 3. We're going to look at a story about a guy named Haman, which I think is one of the best illustrations of a pride-filled life in the Old Testament. If you're there in chapter 3, just a short little history, the book of Esther is written about 30 years before Nehemiah brings back the children of Israel from exile to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the culture. So Esther is a queen of a king of Persia by the name of Xerxes. Would you stand, please, as we read God's word together? Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is really in the middle of a larger theme, a larger plot. There is a subplot about a guy named Haman. So, verse 1. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. The Agagite. Don't you love that name? Agagite. Over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. So Haman's the number two guy, only King Xerxes is higher. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down and show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Now why are you disobeying the king's commands? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the orders. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct, since Mordecai had told him he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so, that he, was, he, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. In other words, it was not enough to kill Mordecai. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of King Xerxes. Let's bow our heads together. Holy Spirit, anything that I say today is really not going to be of great value. But if you speak it'll be life-changing so here we are speak lord open up your word the bible so that it speaks life to us in jesus name i pray amen you may be seated 
So here's the basic plot of what's going on with Haman. Haman is promoted by King Xerxes to be the number two guy in Persia. And when Haman discovers that a Jew by the name of Mordecai will not bow down and give him respect when he walks by, Haman acts like a two-year-old and throws a fit. Now, Now, Haman hates Mordecai so much that he decides it's not enough to kill him, but he's going to destroy all the other Israelites in the kingdom of Persia. Now, why would he do that? Well, remember, the Jews, by law, were not allowed to bow before any other human being or God. It was only the one true God that they were to give their allegiance to. So if Mordecai bent his knee and bowed down, it was like saying that you're God and we only serve the one true God. So Mordecai is really under the law going, I ain't doing that. And Haman has such a fit that he decides he can't stand Jews in general and goes on a thought process to give genocide. Okay? So here's what happens. Haman goes to King Xerxes and says, there's this group of people in your kingdom that don't deserve to live, and we want to wipe them out. And, you know, King Xerxes, he's paying attention, but he's not really paying attention. He's like, yeah, you're the number two guy. If you think you ought to do it, go ahead and do it. So he signs a decree. All the Jews are going to be killed throughout the the empire of King Xerxes. What... Haman doesn't know, and what the king doesn't know, is that his beautiful queen, named Esther, is a Jew. And more so, they have no idea that Queen Esther is the niece of Mordecai. You hanging with me? They also don't know something else that unfolds in the story a little bit later. Some years before, Mordecai saved the king's life by exposing a plot to assassinate him. So King Xerxes signs off in the decree, all the Jews are going to be wiped out, March 6th. So what's today, March 1st? On March 6th, almost 2,500 years ago. 2,480, somewhere in that ballpark. Well, Mordecai finds this out and goes to Esther secretly and says to her, hey, for such a time as this, maybe you were raised up by God to save the Jewish people and you got to do something. So Esther comes up with this plan that she's going to have a series of banquets with the king and with Haman to soften the king up because the way to a man's heart is... Right? And so... She decides she's going to invite Haman and the king to this banquet. So they have one banquet, and the king says, obviously the king's like, well, okay, my queen wants something. I don't know what it is. And she said, I'm going to tell you at the next banquet, you come back the next day. And Haman, you come along too. Well, chapter 6 is really about Haman gloating, saying, I can't believe that I have this personal audience with the queen and the king. And he goes home and he brags to his wife about how wealthy he is, how powerful he is, how every, he's boasting about how everybody's under his authority. And what's more is he's dining with the queen and the king. It's unbelievable. And then he says, oh, but there's one thing that takes away all my joy, and that is the fact that Mordecai still won't bow down to me. He's obsessed with Mordecai. 
So when he goes home and he talks about his, to his wife about all this, his wife makes this suggestion. His wife says, why don't you put a 75-foot pole and at the top of the pole make it really sharp and why don't you impale Mordecai the next day and put him on this pole? Now, how many of you men would like to be married to a woman like that? I mean, what kind of a woman comes up with a plan like that? Impale somebody on a 75-foot pole. Just have them dangling up there. They need counseling. More, uh, Haman thinks it's a great idea. So he decides that the very next day, he's going to go back into the court to see the king to get permission to kill Mordecai. You hanging with me? Because this is, this is like a soap opera. Unbeknownst to Haman, the king can't sleep that night. And so he gets up and he says to one of his attendants, you come on over and you read me the history of my kingdom. Which I think that's kind of funny in and of itself, right? So the king's been king for like 10, 12 years, and I want to get an attendant to read to me the history of how great I am. Well, that's what's going on. And so in the middle of this history reading of King Xerxes' reign, they come across the plot that Mordecai stopped to assassinate the king. And the king goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. Whatever happened to Mordecai, was he ever rewarded for stopping the plot to assassinate me? And the answer is no. So the king decides that he has to find some way to honor Mordecai. So there's a convergence going on. Haman walks in early the next morning to the courtroom and says, and, and, and wants to present his case to kill Mordecai, you know, put him up on a 75-foot pole, and the king comes out, and the king asks him this question. What shall I do to the man whom the king pleases to honor? And chapter 6, verse 7 says this. Haman thought to himself, who would the king want to honor more than me? I'm the number two guy. I'm wonderful. And so Haman says, here's what I think you ought to do. The man whom you choose to honor, I think you ought to put on one of your royal horses and and garb that man with your royal robes and you ought to get some nobleman to walk the guy through the city and say, this is what happens to the man whom the king is pleased to honor. And so he's thinking, it's me. Xerxes is thinking it's Mordecai. And so the king says, what a great idea. You go and be the nobleman that leads Mordecai through the city. And Haman goes, what? Wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall? Come on. I mean, when there's humor in the Bible, you've got to be able to point it out. Uh, what? Wouldn't you love to see Haman knocking on the door of Mordecai's house? Do, 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 do. You doing anything today? Oh, I don't know. You want to go for a ride? (laughs) On the king's horse? Wrapped in royal garb? With me leading you through the city? And Mordecai's like, yes, I'll do that. And that's what happens. Can you believe it? Haman has to walk through the city... And everybody knows Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. And Haman is thoroughly humiliated. He's thoroughly embarrassed. 
but he's got an ace up his sleeve. You know what I mean by that? He's going to have lunch with the king and queen. I mean, you can have a bad day, but if you have a good lunch, that'll make a bad day a good day. So he decides, you know, he goes to see the queen and the king, and they're having this private banquet, and he doesn't know what's coming. Right? So here's what happens. Queen Esther, all of a sudden, in the middle of the meal, turns to the king and freaks out and says to the king, Spare my life, O king. There is someone who wants to take it. And the king is head over heels over Queen Esther. I mean, he loves her. And he's like, what? What are you talking about? Who would try to take your life? And Esther goes, and looks over at Haman. And Haman goes, what? And then it's revealed that Queen Esther is a Jew. And Mordecai, whom Haman has just led through the city, is a Jew. And then the king realizes that he's been manipulated. And he signed a death warrant on hundreds of thousands of people. And he's furious. And he decides he's going to go out into the royal gardens and go for a walk because he barely contained himself. Well, you know when you're having a bad day, you know what it is to go from bad to worse? Haman's having one of those bad to worse days because Queen Esther is laying down on one of these cool royal couches and she's just kind of laying there looking like you're dead, right? And Haman runs over to her and falls down before her and starts pleading for his life. At the very moment, the king walks in and sees him throwing himself at the queen. And the king thinks, what's going on here? This is weird. Are you trying to like, do something? And Haman gets up and was like, uh, no, I'm just trying to like, fight for my life. And the king says, okay, that's it, you're done. And the Bible says that the attendants came in and put a bag over Haman's face and led him out and impaled him on the 75-foot pole he made for Mordecai. Poetic justice. We'll come back to the bag. So, that's the story. You ever ask yourself why this story is in the Bible? Here's why. We are meant to see that we are more or less like Haman. What? That can't possibly be. No, no, listen, the Bible is very clear in saying the seed that is in Haman, is the seed that is in you and the seed that is in me. So what does pride look like? Three things from this story. First of all, pride is simply self. Self Self-focus, self-centeredness, selfishness, self-preoccupation. Somebody has rightly observed that if you take the word pride, the middle letter is I. What am I getting out of my marriage? What am I getting out of my job? What am I getting out of being a parent? It feels like I'm just giving, giving, giving as a parent. When am I going to get something back from my kids? Never, I'll tell you. (laughs) What am I getting out of my friendships? When is the church going to meet my needs? When is the church going to sing songs I like? 
Hey, here's one. How can I have a more purposeful and satisfying life? There's still a lot of I in there. In some ways, none of these questions are wrong or bad. But it's when they go to the extreme. And they reveal something inside of us. You were never created to be the center of your own universe. Only Christ belongs there. Two, a spirit of superiority. What is pride? It's a feeling of, I'm just a little bit better than you. Prideful people struggle with this. Kanye West, which I'm going to tell you, it's going to be on Facebook because the first service, I kept referring to Kanye as Conway. (laughs) I have it written down. I know it's Kanye, but Conway slipped out. And I couldn't even get to the front row until people pointed out, hey, it's Kanye. Don't try to be cool, Pastor. So, you know, Kanye... I almost said it. (laughs) Kanye West, B.C., you know what I mean by that, right? B.C., said some pretty braggadocious things. For example, he once said, you may be talented, but you're no Kanye West. I'm the number one human being in music. That means any other person that is living and breathing is at best number two. Here's my personal favorite from Kanye. (laughs) My greatest pain in life is that I'll never be able to see myself perform live. Now that's over the top, right? I mean, nobody says stuff like that except if you're Kanye. But i got to tell you that the essence of pride is this feeling of superiority that we're just a little bit better than somebody else. For example, a superior spirit struggles with being critical and judgmental. A superior spirit struggles with being merciful. A superior spirit struggles with a feeling of entitlement. The rules are for everybody else, but, you know, for me it's different. A superior spirit struggles with an abuse of power, using personal influence to manipulate and get your way with people who are more vulnerable. Three, what is pride? It is definitely self-focus. It is definitely a superior spirit. But ultimately, pride leads to destruction. It is self-destructive. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. Let me get back to the the idea of when Haman had this thing put over his head, this sack. I think there's a powerful metaphor, and that is this. Pride makes you blind. You can't see yourself as you really are. And you see others in a critical light. Pride is the slipperiest, slipperiest of all the seven sins. 
it's the hardest to nail down. You know why? Because we think that pride is arrogance, thinking too highly of yourself, but actually pride is the opposite as well. People who struggle with insecurity and inferiority and low self-esteem and low self-concept, they're just as prideful as the arrogant person because they're still thinking about themselves and they're still overly preoccupied with themselves. Man, you ever have a pity party? You know, pity parties are all about pride. I'm no good. People are better than me. I'm really trying hard to live up to other people's expectations. I can't be as good as... Hey, you're just as selfish as the arrogant person because you're still thinking about you. Does that make sense? So pride is on this spectrum. And when we say we don't have pride, we've got to be careful because pride is blind and you may have a sack over your face. So, how do you break free from pride? Only one way. And that is to pursue a Christ-like life. If you have your Bible still open, Go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I will not read it all, but Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 is known as the great kenosis passage in the Bible, and it has to do with Jesus emptying himself of his glory and becoming like a servant, a slave, and being obedient to God as unto death and allowing God at his good time to raise him up Jesus went through the humiliation of being crucified on the cross, but one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There'll be people who will willingly drop to their knees and there'll be people that will be forced to drop to their knees. So how do you overcome pride? Three ways. Get humble. You've got to humble yourself. Number two, you've got to go to the cross. You see, there's this misnomer that says because Jesus went to the cross, you don't have to go to the cross. That's not true at all. The Apostle Paul said to the church in Galatia, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in and through me. Every single one of us, though Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sins on the cross... There comes a point in every single person's life where we need to go back to the cross, climb up on the cross and say, there is way too much of me in me. And I've got to get out of being the center of my own universe. Because the only rightful place is for Jesus to be there. And then three, you actually lead by serving and trusting God to raise you up. In other words, creating a lifestyle of putting others first. Jesus said it this way, those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for, this, for, for their life in this world will keep it for all of eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. This, this process of pursuing Christ-likeness is the process of humbling yourself, admitting you're not all that, intentionally putting yourself on the cross, and intentionally living a lifestyle of serving and going low. Many of you know the name of Andrew Murray, who was um, just a a, a great um, writer from years gone by, but uh, Andrew Murray wrote these words. Here's the path to the higher life. Down. Lower down. 
Just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds men abased and empty, His glory and His power flow to exalt and to bless. You want to go up? You do it by going down. You do it by humbling yourself. So on Monday, our second daughter had her second baby, very healthy, baby boy. So now Holly and I are grandparents of five. So praise God for that. But on Saturday, Saturday night, no, it was Sunday night, we went and picked up, picked up our grandson Paxton because we wanted him to stay with us for a few days to give mom and dad some time to be, um, you know, with baby number two, Carson. So on Tuesday night, I gave um, Paxton a bath. And I noticed that when I was letting the water out, he had a little accident. And I said, hey, Holly, (laughs) guess what your grandson did? And she said, what are you telling me for? You clean it up. So I'm like, (laughs) go low. Hopefully not that low. Look, it's good for you to humble yourself. It takes a stab at your pride. You'll be a better person. You'll be a more Christ-like person. The more you pursue serving rather than being served, the more you pursue, pursue being a servant in your home, rather than waiting for other people to serve you. The more you're a servant at work, the best leadership books that have been written in the last 20 years are under the caption of servant leadership. We need to break free from pride. And we don't do it by self-improvement, by the way. This isn't about getting better. This is actually about going to the cross. So I have a prayer card. I think, I think, Every week in this series, I'm going to have a prayer card for you to take home if you so desire. This week's prayer card is entitled, Dying to Self. And here's the prayer. Dear Lord, I need your help. There is too much I in me. Help me to break free from pride so I can live a Christ-like life. I humble myself before you. I place my pride on the cross and I die to it so I can live free in you. You were made to be free. Help me to discern how best to live as a servant in my family, at work, in my community, to my fellow Christians, and most of all to you. If you know, deep down on the inside, that you need to pray that prayer, like, a lot of times, why don't you just come pick it up at the end of the service, put it in a place where you can pray it two, three, four, five times a day, 
and allow Christ to live out His life in you rather than you trying to control your life and figure out which way to go. Would you stand, please? Father, I want to pray a blessing on every person who has heard this message. I pray right now that you would um, bring this gentle sense of conviction that says there's too much I in me, and you can do something about that. God, give us the courage to go back to the cross and climb up on it and say, yep, I'm dying out to myself. Because it's only in that way that we can live. So God, do something in us that we cannot do in and of ourselves. Help us to die to pride. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, God bless you all. Have a great rest of the day. We have some up front on the altars here if you'd like to pick up the prayer cards.